This series contains occasional references to abuse, sexual misconduct, and other topics that some people might find disturbing. It was the 90s. I was eight years old, and I was visiting Manhattan's Little Italy with my parents. On Mulberry Street, then and now, are all these little souvenir shops. Among the Statue of Liberty paperweights and I Heart NYC baseball caps, one thing jumped out at me. Marilyn Monroe's picture was everywhere. Even decades after her death, her blonde hair, parted red lips, and half-open eyes were an easy sell. I begged my parents to buy me a cheap coin purse with her face on it. Throughout her short life, Marilyn was a magnet for powerful people. They adored being close to her, and that didn't change after she passed away. Fame is fickle, and I know it. It has its compensation. It does, but it also has its drawbacks. And I've experienced both. Her body rests in a huge above-ground mausoleum in L.A. It's home to quite a few celebrities from bygone eras. Dean Martin, Minnie Ripperton, Truman Capote. Marilyn's grave, number 24, is marked by a little plaque that says, Marilyn Monroe, 1926 to 1962, and nothing more. And there, right next to her, comes another famous name. Hugh Marston Hefner, president of Playboy Clubs International, publisher of Playboy magazine, a millionaire and a bachelor. Hugh Hefner the founder of Playboy magazine. Although he's buried beside Marilyn, they didn't know each other. Actually, they never even met. Do you think you would have dated her? I would have loved to have. You know I'm a sucker for blondes, <laughs> and she is the ultimate blonde. Years before he died, Hefner paid $75,000 to reserve a grave next to hers. He obviously hoped that some of Marilyn's glamour would reflect on him, even after they were gone. And this wasn't the first time Hefner had used her body to further his celebrity. Back in 1953, Hefner bought some nude pictures of Marilyn, taken before she was famous. Without her permission, he used those pictures to launch the very first issue of his magazine. He splashed her across the cover and printed her topless photos inside. And an empire was born. A 30 million pound empire built around the simple principle that most people like to look at pretty girls. In this case, well-trained pretty girls. Hefner will be remembered as more than an elderly gent in a silk robe. He changed the face of America. He was the ultimate playboy. Hefner is credited with ushering in the sexual revolution in the 60s with his men's magazine. He was also known for lavish parties that were thrown at the mansion. Take a second and picture Playboy in your head. What are you seeing? Bunny costumes, right? Maybe the ritzy Playboy mansion? But 
Whatever your personal vision is, I can guarantee we're all thinking about women right now. Today, the way Hugh Hefner presented those women might seem cheap or sad or out of date or just wrong. But when Playboy first launched, it was a sensation. He's discovered a new formula for packaging pornography, and it's made him Playboy of the Western world. Over the following half century, Hefner and his media empire came right up against the biggest cultural flashpoints of that time. The sexual revolution, free speech, women's liberation, and civil rights. At the center of it all was this little man in a silk robe who somehow bent the world around his fantasies. But it's hard to say if he understood the human cost of bringing those fantasies to life. Could I honestly say to myself that in all those years, with all those adventures, what for me was a celebration of my life, would I say with certainty that someone wasn't hurt by it? There are plenty of big philosophical questions about how Playboy affected women writ large. But on an individual level, there's a lot of evidence that Hefner was abusive and controlling to some of the women he was closest with. And so were other famous, powerful men who used the Playboy Mansion and clubs to hurt people. A stunning fall from grace tonight for Bill Cosby, the man once dubbed America's Dead, found guilty on all three counts of aggravated indecent assault. There are so many layers to this story. As an editor and a journalist covering sex, it's been impossible for me to avoid Playboy's legacy, which was also true when I worked at nightclubs or in front of cameras or as the girlfriend of a much older rich guy. Its influence is all around us. I've become obsessed with finding out everything I can about Hugh Hefner to see where else we hear the echoes of his power in our lives today. I'm going to trace Hefner's rise and demise through the women who made Playboy. I'm hoping they'll help me find my way through some of the questions I think about most often. What are the trade-offs when we try to find freedom through the cracks in our own exploitation? How can glamour and prestige become a cover for inequality and mistreatment? What will this story tell us about sex and power, then and now? I'm Amy Rose Spiegel, and from something else, this is season two of Power, the story of Hugh Hefner and the rise and fall of Playboy. The more I discover about Hugh Hefner, the more I'm confused by his weird brand of charisma. This guy wasn't bombastic, like a cult leader, or scary, like a gangster. But something about him convinced millions of people to buy into what he thought sexuality should be. You can't really get it unless you get him from before he was famous. So to understand what drove him and the power he held over others, I want you to meet him when he was the same age I am now. In 1953, Hefner is 30, living in his hometown of Chicago, and bored as hell. The early 50s are all about social conformity, sexual repression, and other goody-goody family values the United States considered American as apple pie. This boy and girl coming home from school look quite content with life. And why not? They're looking forward to an important date, dinner at home with the family. 
So far, Hefner's life has followed the same route as many other young men after World War II. And I was raised in a conservative middle-class uh, home in Chicago by rather strict parents and went directly from that controlled environment into the Army uh, during the Second World War. That controlled environment, out of that into college, and in those days that was a controlled environment, and then into marriage. Hefner marries his high school sweetheart, Millie. But just days before their wedding, Millie reveals that she had an affair while he was away in the military. Hefner is devastated. I expected marriage to be the fulfillment of all my romantic dreams. It was the opposite. I felt as if the dreams had ended. It's become part of the Hugh Hefner myth that it was Millie's affair that set him off on his path to sexual liberation. Soon enough, He's making his own amateur porn film, swinging with his brother's wife, having a full-blown affair with a nurse, and organizing risque parties where he encourages his friends to get drunk, play strip poker, and watch porn together. All this, Hefner later said, was an attempt to escape the social conventions of post-war America. Quote, somehow to just not keep marching lockstep into the abyss. We can't fail to find happiness together in this wonderful world of today and tomorrow, in a whole lifetime of wonderful tomorrows. But private sexual experiments aren't enough for the young Hefner. He wants everyone to follow his lead. He starts to make a plan. Moving from job to job, Hefner gets some experience in publishing, including a role as a copywriter at Esquire. He thinks the magazine will be the doorway to a more glittering, thrilling lifestyle. But he finds it dull. Hefner decides he's done waiting for other people to bring the excitement to him. He quits his job and takes out a bank loan, borrowed against the new furniture in the home he shares with Millie and their baby daughter. He gets his friends to invest, and even borrows money from his mother. Finally, Hefner scrapes together the funds to launch his very own magazine. In the editor's letter for Playboy's first issue, the one with Marilyn on the cover, Hefner is blunt about who the magazine is for. If you're a man between the ages of 18 and 80, Playboy is meant for you. And who it's not for. If you're somebody's sister, wife, or mother-in-law, please pass this along to the man in your life and get back to your lady's home companion. Hefner imagines a modern cosmopolitan man, the Playboy. This is his perfect reader. We enjoy mixing up cocktails and an hors d'oeuvre or two, putting a little mood music on the phonograph, and inviting in a female acquaintance for a quiet discussion on Picasso, Nietzsche, jazz, sex. Hefner's fantasy world is born on the page with pictures of beautiful women alongside journalism, fiction, and cartoons. In an interview on ITN, Hefner does his best to characterize Playboy as a reaction to the repressive times he finds himself in. A response to uh, the Puritan ethic that exists in America, an attack on, uh, on what I feel are the negative aspects of the anti-sexual uh, and anti-play and pleasure aspects of uh, our tradition. It's a symbol of political revolution, free speech, and the advancement of equality. And it wasn't simply race. It had to do with sexual prejudice. It had to do with drug prejudice. Really, Playboy was, at its core, a horny celebration of what Hefner himself decided was sexy and compelling, 
which just so happened to be conventionally attractive and predominantly white women deferring to guys. But Hefner turned out to be right that people would buy into this point of view. The initial reaction was phenomenal. People saw the spirit of the book and what we were trying to do and responded to that even before the quality was there. It was a matter of being in the right place at the right time, but with a point of view whose time had come. Playboy flies off the newsstands, and for the first few years, subscriptions rise steadily. But Hefner knows in his gut that something is missing. Sure, the Marilyn Monroe pictures were a hit, but mostly, Playboy is just reusing pictures from nude calendars. Hefner needs something fresh to take his magazine to the next level. And one day, he finds that something sitting right next to him. They were kind of hanging out. He looked over to her and said, hey, why don't you be in the picture? To think that, like, this magazine became what it was pretty much because of her, I think, you know? Playboy's next megastar is an unlikely suspect, a girl from the sticks named Charlene. You have to make sure you don't say Charlene because she hated that. It's Charlene Edith Corrales. Her daughter Linda is going to help us tell her story. Charlene was born in 1934 and died in 2017, the same year as Hefner. And um, she grew up in Wheaton, Illinois. Small town, about 25 miles west of Chicago. They were very poor. There were five kids all together and they slept on the floor. And her father was not around, so her mom had to raise the five kids. As Charlene grew up, she had a clear idea of what she wanted to do with her life. She wanted to, you know, get in on the ground floor of a a new company and, and become a businesswoman. By the time she's in her early 20s, Charlene has moved to the big city, but she still hasn't found the right job. And then one day, she's with a friend. She and her girlfriend that she worked with went to a newsstand and bought a Playboy And they were very embarrassed about it, and they hid it under their coats. And they were like, ooh, we got a Playboy. And, you know, she wanted to read the magazine and see what it was. As Charlene and her friend read the magazine, something catches her eye. I know that she saw a wanted ad. A job listing. Hefner was recruiting for the Playboy office. Maybe this could be the business opportunity that Charlene was looking for. And she did end up going for the interview. And her girlfriend, as she says, chickened out. Charlene gets the job, becoming the new subscriptions manager at Playboy. She and Hefner get along extremely well. And pretty soon, they're dating. She and Hef were very good friends, um, obviously more than friends. This is just at that moment when Hefner is looking for Playboy's next big thing. One day, out of nowhere, he asks Charlene to model for the magazine. At first, she's reluctant. This could take off or this could be really bad. You know, who knew what was going to happen with these pictures? I believe that he had to convince her many times to do it. But eventually, Hefner wears her down and she agrees. And so begins the transformation of Charlene Carolis. If you posed for the magazine, you were called a playmate. And if you were the centerfold, it meant you got top honors. In July 1955, Charlene becomes the very first centerfold. 
In the first picture, she's sitting at her typewriter, short blonde hair, fully clothed, long sleeves, collared shirt. The caption reads, Potential playmates are all around you. The secretary at your office, the doe-eyed beauty who sat opposite you at lunch yesterday, the girl who sells you shirts and ties at your favorite store. Turn the page and Charlene is sitting at a dressing table. She's not wearing much, but what she is wearing is pure Maryland drag. Her lipstick is red and her choker and earrings are maybe not diamonds, but they look like them. And Hef was there for moral support. He is in the background, leaning against the, the doorway. You know, obviously it shows her cleavage, so she's not quite ready for the date yet. In script overlaid on this seductive bedroom scene is a signature, affectionately Janet Pilgrim. Charlene's new last name, suggested by Hefner, is a play on the puritanical values that he found so oppressive. The subscriptions manager has become a superstar playmate. But Hefner's big innovation is that Janet Pilgrim isn't presented as an unattainable glamour model. As the text explains, We found Miss July in our own circulation department, processing subscriptions, renewals, and back copy orders. And she's as efficient as she is good-looking. Janet is the original girl next door. If she can be a Playboy playmate, so can your secretary. So can your neighbor. Hefner was blurring the lines between celebrity sex symbols like Marilyn Monroe and the women all around us. He's selling the idea that anyone and everyone is a lusty goddess just waiting to be discovered. Maybe even by you. Becoming Janet Pilgrim changes Charlene's life. She became very famous in, in Chicago and everywhere she went, people knew her. Men were constantly, you know, calling her and I know she liked the attention. But there's one person who needs some convincing about this new opportunity. Her mother kind of was a little bit skeptical about the whole, you know, half-nude pictures. And uh, she took her mom out to dinner in Chicago and she walked into the restaurant and the maitre d' came right over to her and was like, oh, Miss Pilgrim, please take a seat. We've got a beautiful table here for you. And her mother was just like, wow, okay, <laughs> this is pretty cool. As Janet adjusts to her new lifestyle, Playboy reaps the benefits of her popularity. After her debut, Hefner is attracting media buzz. In 1956, Time profiles Playboy. The latest phenomenon in U.S. magazine publishing is Playboy, an oversexed young version of the 23-year-old Esquire. Last week, not yet three years old but selling 688,000 copies, the slick and sassy 50-cent monthly threatened to outstrip Esquire in a circulation fight. Esquire cannot keep abreast. The spotlight on Playboy brings out the critics, too. Hefner and his approach to sexuality are called into question on the journalist Mike Wallace's TV show. I think that you'll agree it's a sniggering kind of sex. It's a lascivious kind of sex. It certainly isn't a healthy approach to sex. You we, would suggest that it is. I would not only suggest that, I would say rather strongly, we consider it a pretty healthy attitude. As the attention grows, so do Playboy's circulation numbers and Hefner's wealth. Obviously, the subscriptions went way up. <laughs> so money, money for him. I started with a personal investment of $600. In eight years, I've built an empire worth $20 million. 
Janet Pilgrim didn't share in Hefner's profits. She made, I think, 50 for the first and 75 and then 125. But Linda says she didn't feel any ill will towards him. And eventually, Janet Pilgrim decided to become Charlene Carulas once again. She really, really, really wanted to be a mom and be out of the spotlight and just be a regular person. And that's what she got. After the break, we'll hear how Hefner wasn't satisfied by conjuring a fantasy world on the page. He needed to live it and prove to others he was the swinging party animal he'd made himself out to be in the magazine. After having spent uh, most of the 50s behind the desk creating the fantasy, I really started living out the fantasy. I reinvented myself. We're hitting the smoke-filled Playboy clubs in their heyday to hear about life as a bunny. The glamour. We had celebrities in there every night. The pressure. They told me I was too skinny because I didn't weigh 100 pounds. And the money. He says, honey, how much do you make here a night? So I finally said, well, I make about $20 a night. And he says, how'd you like to make 100? When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. By the end of the 50s, Hefner has made Playboy magazine a huge success. He hits a million subscribers and is wealthy enough to buy the original Playboy mansion in Chicago, a 70-room, 30,000-square-foot party house. For you or me, this might be enough. Not for Hefner, nowhere close. Because for Hefner, making money is only ever half the story. He's also been working hard on who he wants Hugh Hefner to be. In a letter to his younger self, written near the end of his life, he describes this process of reinvention. You'll wear cooler clothes and listen to Frank Sinatra. You'll turn yourself into the sort of teenager you see in movies at the Montclair Theater. The hippest, most popular kid in school. The center of the party. Hugh will be gone. From now on, you will call yourself Hef and your life will change forever. He created the Playboy persona, his perfect man, partly in response to his own failures and insecurities. But up until now, he's not really living that life himself just yet. If he's going to become the Playboy, he needs to take his magazine's fantasy world of pretty women, fine food, and sick parties, and turn it into reality. 
1960, Hefner opens the first Playboy Members Club in Chicago. Bright lights, bright colors, costumes, all these gorgeous satins and velvet. And there was music, there was food, excitement, there was entertainment on two levels. We had celebrities in there every night. I've lost count of all the people that I met and served and turned down. The first year I worked there, the Beatles came in. Tony Bennett came in every day. One night you'd be serving Jack Nicholson. You never knew who was going to come in the front door. Hefner had no track record or experience in clubs, but he did have a secret weapon. A bunny is an American creation. She's a cross between a hostess showgirl and a barmaid waitress, well-versed in the art of charming the cash customers in a string of plush international clubs. Hefner's strategy, as always, was based on beautiful women. The Playboy bunnies would staff the clubs as waitresses, while also bringing a taste of the magazine's sexual promise to the members. It's time we met a few of these women. All right, and this is a podcast, so there'll be nothing on camera. Okay, good. So you will be asking questions, because I tend to rattle on. (laughs) Catherine Lee Scott is an actress and writer. Jackie Nett is a yoga teacher. Both were bunnies in the 60s. Let's start with Jackie. In 1962, she left her hometown in Mississippi straight after graduating high school. To come to California because I wanted to be a movie star. Her father says he'll send her money, but only if she's getting an education. So I went to college in theater arts. As graduation approaches, it's crunch time. Soon, I wouldn't have financial support for my father. She's doing some modeling, but not earning enough to get by. If she has to go home to Mississippi, the acting dream will be over. That's when she hears about a new possibility. One of my friends in the theater arts department, we were doing Oklahoma, and I was in the dream sequence as a showgirl. And in the costume, he said, Jackie, you should become a bunny. And I didn't know what a bunny was. And so I said, okay. Not knowing what to expect, Jackie waits for the audition. Thousands of miles away, in New York, Catherine Lee Scott shared Jackie's dreams of being an actress and faced the same financial pressure. I was a Minnesota farm girl, and I've always had aspirations of being an actress and a writer. And I arrived in New York with a scholarship to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, but I needed a bread and butter job to pay rent and so on. And that's when I saw an ad in the New York Times, girls step into the spotlight, be a Playboy bunny. It's like they were speaking directly to you, step into the spotlight. (laughs) I felt like I was one step from Broadway just auditioning. So you auditioned as soon as you saw the ad. What was that like? I stood in a long line with an awful lot of other bunny hopefuls. And I brought a dance leotard with me because we were supposed to bring a bathing suit or something because we knew we would be playing a Playboy bunny. This was a job a lot of young women wanted. Aside from anything else, the money was great. You could wait tables, you could be a shop girl, you could be a temporary secretary in an office, but um, you were earning a minimum wage of $1.35 at the time. And at Playboy, I could earn $150 working part-time, and 
that allowed me all of the time to go to classes. I could even buy tickets to Broadway plays. I mean, it was nirvana. You know, I went from telemarketing to putting on a bikini in a club and saying, hi. And I have to tell you, it changed my life too. How did it change your life? It prepared me to be a better journalist because actually speaking to people and learning how to get along was very formative for me. And then it materially changed my life. The money was so much better. You go from making $15 an hour to $500 a night. Catherine auditioned for this job that could change her life and waited. In L.A., it's the big day for Jackie. She turns up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed for her own bunny audition. They told me I was too skinny because I didn't weigh 100 pounds. And they said, in so many words, don't call us, we'll call you. And I said, okay, well, I was going to go home to Mississippi, and I said, I will gain weight. And they said, well, you do that. On her way out of the building, Jackie bumps into the woman who's just interviewed her. And I was pointing out my motorcycle, because I rode a motorcycle to the interview, and I would do that for modeling. I would ride my motorcycle, and I'd find a bathroom, and I would take my clothes out of my makeup bag, and I would get dressed and go on my interview. And she thought it was so cool that I rode there on a motorcycle. The motorcycle must have done the trick, because after one more interview, she gets the job. Straight away, she has to make changes to her look. I was a flower child, meaning my motorcycle had flowers, I painted flowers on my face, I wore flowers, my car had flowers painted on it. And I came to work with my face all painted and they made me wash my face. What did they say to you? (laughs) You must have looked incredible. I think that they made the wrong choice. But what did they say to you about it? No, no, no. You can't wear flowers on your face because we couldn't wear rings or you couldn't wear anything other than the costumes. In New York, Catherine Lee Scott also got the job. Straight away, she wrote home to her parents back in Minnesota. I couldn't help but think about your reaction. You'll worry that I'm working in a nightclub atmosphere, but don't. The place is elegant, clean, serves good food, and has excellent entertainment. The club is located in the most fashionable part of Manhattan. The girls wear bathing suit-type satin outfits with black hose, high heels, white collars and cuffs, and cotton tails. Incidentally, there's nothing cheap about being a bunny. Catherine is eager to reassure her parents about the life she's choosing. My dad was a farmer, and uh, this was a world as far away from theirs as you could imagine. But she also knows she'll need to develop a whole new persona. I was a bit shy, uh, even though I wanted to be an actress. I mean, how many actors (laughs) are basically shy? When I stuffed the schoolgirl part of me in the locker and put on that costume, I also assumed that that glamorous persona, I felt like a showgirl. And that was really fun. I was 19 years old. When the shy 19-year-old from Minnesota arrives at the Manhattan Playboy Club for the first time, she finds that every detail is designed to make the club feel high class. Even the street entrance. Outside the New York Playboy Club on 59th Street, there was a staircase with a a brass railing that led up to the entry. And I think it was designed to make key holders feel special even before they entered the club. 
To get into the Playboy Club, you need a special key with a metal rabbit head. You present it to the door bunny and then head into the Playmate bar. Which was always crowded and it had photographs of Playmates mounted on the walls. Take a half flight up to the piano bar. And that's where I love to work because I love jazz and some of the best jazz musicians played there, including Monty Alexander and his trio. Go up another flight of stairs to the living room where there's a butler in full livery. And he served a buffet with what I call guy food, spare ribs and Swedish meatballs and London broil. And then the floor above that is the VIP room. And that was a very elegant dining room. And only foreign-born bunnies worked there. They wore these blue velvet costumes that had a sort of a silver trim. Keep climbing those stairs and you'll get to the showroom. That's where some really wonderful musicians played. If you're rich, famous, or hot enough, you might be invited up one final story to the penthouse. And I remember Liza Minnelli, who was working on Broadway then, and when she finished her show, she would come over to the penthouse because that's where her boyfriend, Peter Allen, and his brother were performing. The first year I worked there, the Beatles came in. And at the very top of the club is the bunny dressing room. To me, this sounds like where the action really was. Uh, we had makeup tables surrounded by these bright Judy lights, and that's where the fun and the camaraderie was. But you're not allowed in here. The bunny dressing room was off limits to anyone who wasn't a bunny, so the place was magical. It's not surprising that the clubs became such a success. The biggest stars of the era performed, from Miles Davis to Ray Charles. At its peak, Playboy claimed to have 750,000 members, or keyholders, and dozens of clubs around the world. To become a keyholder in those early years, all you needed was $25. The balance of glitz and access was good for business. You're a very rich man now because of the bunnies. Uh, how many times over are you a millionaire? Uh, about 72. The success of the clubs catapulted Hefner into the national limelight. Finally, he could publicly step into the Playboy role. He could be the center of the party. Anybody who doesn't know who Hugh Hefner is probably uh, just got here to this country or is um, under six years of age or something like that. Hefner took the credit, but the success of the clubs depended entirely on the bunnies themselves. And they were under heavy expectations to make sure his investment in them was a good one. Girls were their advertisements. People came to the club to see the girls. But what happened if you couldn't deal with the pressure? He said, Jackie, you gotta get it together. You're not doing good. That's coming up after the break. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. The sex appeal of the now-iconic Playboy bunnies was central to Hapner's strategy with the clubs. 
the bunnies had to do a lot more than just look pretty. They went through a rigorous waitress training program designed by Keith Hepner, Hugh's brother, and they had to live their lives according to some very strict rules laid down by the notorious bunny training manual. The bunny's hair, nails, shoes, makeup, and costume must be bunny perfect, and no bunny is permitted to begin working unless apparent specifications are met. Demerits may be issued for carelessness in this regard. Good grooming starts with a daily bath and good deodorant. Regular use of body lotion will keep your skin soft and pretty. Bunnies may dance with patrons, provided there is no close physical contact. Twist, Watusi, Boogaloo, etc. are examples of acceptable dances. When Jackie arrives at the L.A. Playboy Club on Sunset Boulevard, she's only just starting to understand the role she's expected to play. When I was hired, I was quite innocent. You know, it wasn't that I knew what I was getting into. And I was in the bunny room and looking at these very beautiful girls because we were hired for our looks. We weren't hired for our brains. If the brains came along, good. But we were hired for our looks. We were hired for an illusion. Playboy was an illusion. Can you explain what you mean when you say Playboy was an illusion? Walking down into the club, there was the ambiance, the lighting, the beautiful bunnies, the music, everything gave this illusion of sexuality. From her very first shift, Jackie loves creating this atmosphere. I was a happy bunny. We used to dance, carrying a tray and dancing, or dancing on the piano bar. At first, Jackie's stationed in the high-pressure Playmates bar. It's where people come in and have their drink and wait for their table, so it's a very fast area. She tries to follow all the rules in the training manual and learn the ropes as a cocktail waitress, but she struggles. I drop my tray all the time, and I almost got fired. She can't get the hang of calling the complex drink orders the impatient bartenders. Scotch, Canadian, bourbons and blends, rye, Irish gin, vodka, rum, mixed blend, cream, drinks, beer, wine, and Irish coffee. I couldn't get it. So she gets moved to working the door. When the clients came in, they would present their card. Well, I couldn't read most names. Because she's dyslexic. Yeah. What to do with this struggling bunny? Maybe she'll do better in the gift shop? The account department wrote and said, don't ever put her in the gift shop because it took them all day to figure out what I did. (laughs) (laughs) The manager is breathing down her neck. He sat me down and he said, Jackie, you got to get it together because you are, you're not doing good. Jackie decides that it's time to shape up. And I finally just said, I got it to get it together. And so I just sat down and really studied. I started practicing and practicing, and I started earning my way up. Actually, she gets so good that she rises to the rank of bunny mother, training new bunnies in L.A. and around the world. She has high, exacting standards. When they got to know me, they would tell me, oh, my God, you were so tough. Oh, my God, I was so afraid. I liked it that way. So let's say I'm a new bunny 
and I come to you and you are training me. What do you say to me? How do you help me out with the rules? One of the things I tell the ladies, and I call them all ladies, is that you are hired for your looks. You make your tip off of your looks. If your service is bad, you become very ugly very quickly. You have to learn how to carry. You have to learn how to take the order. You have to learn how to do the bunny dip. You have to learn the calling order. You have to know how to... We were walking bartenders. You had to be able to walk around in a corset and three-inch heels for eight hours. You don't take your shoes off because if you take your shoes off and your foot swells, then you can't get your shoes back on. So you take a club soda, pour it in your shoes, and you walk around with slushy feet. I'd never heard of pouring club soda into your shoes to stop swelling before I received this bit of bunny ingenuity. It keeps the feet from swelling. It cools the feet. Oh my gosh, I could have used this information last night. My feet swelled after dinner. <laughs> it was like coming out of the subway out of my heel. I was like, ah. Yeah. See, this is why, so this is cl- why I need this information. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. Club soda. You walk around in club soda until you get used to it. You're carrying this very heavy tray. You serve backwards because you don't lean over the table. You serve backwards to do the bunny dip. Do it with grace and beauty, and it's an art form. So they had to be good. It sounds like plenty of the bunnies had a ball, even with club soda in their high heels. Jackie rose to a powerful position at Playboy, and both Jackie and Catherine were two of the many women who used the bunny job as a launching pad for their future careers. I loved talking to both of them, and it was so good to hear that for them, the experience of being a Playboy bunny could be fun and gratifying. When I worked at nightclubs, I really liked it too. At least, most of the time. Work like this can be complicated, and part of it is dealing with people who cross the line. A lot of the women I spoke to for this series were firm about not wanting to make a big deal about any abusive or untoward behavior they encountered. This feels like a generational difference. Then as now, many working women had to find their own methods for dealing with harassment and assault. But how it was discussed and acknowledged feels really different to me. As Catherine told me, it was just a part of life. It taught me how to send up the right signals about how I wanted to be treated in the workplace and what it was like to work in an adult environment, which I think um, all young people have to learn. In 1963, an undercover expose of the more sordid aspects of the job put Hefner on the defensive. And that short-lived bunny had a very different experience from the ones we've heard about so far. In the end, I kind of came to understand that in many ways women are all bunnies. You know, we're all in that position of being judged by our external selves. Even if the real bunnies thought that story was kind of a joke. She was only there for three weeks to a month. She had an agenda. Still, as Hefner's power grows across the United States and beyond, more people start asking, shouldn't women be able to set the terms of their own sexual liberation? The thing that's most offensive about the whole Playboy philosophy is that 
Women are presented as mindless sex objects. They only exist to go to bed with a man, to cook his meals, to smile charmingly, to flatter everything he ever says, and to convince him of his ultimate importance. And who's being hurt in order to maintain Hefner's vision of sexuality instead? This is Holly Madison, one of Hefner's former girlfriends who appeared on the TV series Girls Next Door. I'll speak to her for a long time later in the show. For so many years, I'd been in this relationship with Hef where I was made to feel terrible. I couldn't take the verbal and emotional abuse anymore. That's all coming up on Power, Hugh Hefner, and the rise and fall of Playboy. If you want to hear more from the incredible women I'm talking to for this series, hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. This week, you'll find an extended cut of my conversation with Jackie Nett. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed talking to Jackie. And she had many more stories than we were able to fit in about her outrageous flower child years in Los Angeles. If you're an Apple Podcast subscriber, you'll also be able to hear ad-free episodes every week. All right, and here are the people who made our show. Power Hugh Hefner is a Something Else production. It's hosted by me, Amy Rose Spiegel. The series producer is Dave Anderson, and the producers are Georgia Mills, Chica Ayers, and Paul Smith. Our associate producer is Millie Chu. Mixing and sound design from Sam Baer. Mira Sharma and Peggy Sutton are the editors. The executive producer is Peggy Sutton. With thanks to Jen Mystery, Ike Egbatola, Jez Nelson, and Leanne Richardson. If you like the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Leave a rating while you're there. It really helps new listeners find the show. 